This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 175, Monsters. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. What comes to mind when you think of monsters? The Sasquatch? The T-Rex? The Boss? If telling your children there's no such thing as monsters helps them sleep, go right ahead. But the grown-ups should know better. This week we will discuss the most famous monster story in the Bible, and the greatest one. How heroes find monsters instead of letting the monsters find them. How the monster inside of you can be a blessing instead of a curse. And how we can defeat monsters by getting up close and personal with them. This is what I've been preaching. I googled the term monster to get a definition, and this is what I got. An imaginary creature that is typically large, ugly, and frightening. Well, that's a definition that was probably written by the father of a toddler. Daddy, are monsters real? No, Junior, they're not real. Here, let me look it up. Here it is. They're imaginary creatures. So there they are. They're not real. Go back to sleep. I'm not sure that furthers the cause of knowledge very much. It certainly didn't for me. So I went an extra step, and I looked to dictionary.com, and I got not one but five answers that were considerably better than the other one. Number one, a legendary animal combining features of animal and human form, or having the forms of various animals in combination, as a centaur, griffin, or sphinx. Well, that makes sense. Those are not real. Two, any creature so ugly or monstrous as to frighten people. Well, that makes sense, too, and those definitely exist. Three, an animal or human grotesquely deviating from the normal shape, behavior, or character. Well, that may not be the most politically correct thing I've ever read in my life, but I have to say that's real too. Four, a person who excites horror by wickedness, cruelty, etc. Well, no doubt about that. Five, any animal or thing huge in size. Well, all those definitions make plenty of sense. And for four out of five of the definitions, they are absolutely real. And speaking of animals and things huge in size, the most famous monster story of all, most likely, certainly the most famous monster story in the Bible, is the story of David and Goliath. David, the young man, takes it upon himself to rid the world of this giant, this harassing being that is not only threatening his countrymen and his family, but offending God himself. He has faith. He has courage. He has five smooth stones. And he takes on the monster, and he defeats the monster. It's a classic story. People who don't know the Bible from a hole in the wall know about David and Goliath. And it strikes me that we need these monsters in our lives for the same reason that we need heroes. You really can't have the one without the other. A hero is defined as the one who gets rid of the monster. And when we see these monsters in our lives, and we see heroes stepping up to confront them, we get to build hope in ourselves. The difficulties, the hardships, the problems, the pain and suffering in this life doesn't have to be permanent. There is goodness in the world. There's justice in the world. There's hope in the world. And perhaps even more importantly than that, we put ourselves in the position of the hero. Most of the hero stories are written so as to do exactly that. This inspires us to be heroes ourselves, to take on the monsters in our life, monsters in our culture, the monsters afflicting our family. We can be heroes. We can rise to the occasion. We can do the thing that God is requiring us to do. And of course, the greatest hero stories, the greatest monster stories are in the Bible, including the greatest one of all. We see a piece of it in Revelation 19, 
starting the reading in verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of his fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, those who were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burned with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That goes through chapter 20 and verse 2 there. And thank you for sticking with the longer than normal reading. But this is perhaps the perfect hero story, isn't it? You have the monsters. You have three of them. Two of them introduced in Revelation chapter 13, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth. And then the dragon, of course, the greatest monster of all who is not introduced in Revelation at all, but rather in Genesis chapter 3 in the form of the serpent. This great warfare that has always been taking place between mankind and the spirit beings of evil is won. Victory is achieved by Jesus. He destroys the beast. He shackles the dragon. He gives us confidence that the battle that we are fighting, the battle that we seem to be losing over and over again, is not only winnable, it has already been won. And when we see Jesus on his white horse, and we see him victorious over his enemies, that gives us hope that we also can and will be victorious. The monsters in our life will be defeated, maybe not in the time and place that we would have chosen, but ultimate victory is going to be ours if we will take our direction from the greatest hero of all and his defeat of the greatest monster of all. This is what I've been reading. One of the best three bucks I ever spent was when I stumbled upon Seamus Haney's translation of Beowulf in a used bookstore. I'd never read Beowulf all the way through. I'd read snippets and excerpts and such. Never the whole thing all the way through, though. Most of you probably know, at least in broad strokes, what's going on. Beowulf is a great hero that is called to the Hall of Hrothgar, this lord in Scandinavia who has built this great dining hall for his people. And the hall is visited every night by this monster named Grendel. The poem reads like this. So times were pleasant for the people there until finally one, a fiend out of hell, began to work his evil in the world. Grendel was the name of this grim demon, haunting the marshes, marauding round the heath and the desolate fens. 
He had dwelt for a time in misery among the banished monsters, Cain's clan, whom the Creator had outlawed and condemned as outcasts. For the killing of Abel, the Eternal Lord had exacted a price. Cain got no good from committing that murder, because the Almighty made him anathema, and out of the curse of his exile there sprang ogres and elves and the evil phantoms, and the giants too, who strove with God time and time again until he gave them their reward. This short reading is indicative of the role that God plays in the story of Beowulf. The parts that I'd read before didn't have all of this, and I don't think that was an accident. But it's clear that the people who originally told this story were telling it from a Christian perspective. They understood God was real. And more to the point here today, evil was real. And that evil runs rampant in the world and calls out for a hero. These monsters serve a purpose in God's plan, if only to allow us to elevate heroes like Beowulf. And what would happen, by the way, if we didn't have the monsters? Would we just be sitting around in our dining halls, gorging ourselves, talking about how wonderful we were, talking about how mighty warriors we would be if ever given half an opportunity? The monsters give rise to the heroes. Because of the evil of Grendel, Beowulf is able to come into the story and defeat the evil. But if you remember the story, it doesn't stop there. Driving off the monster does not solve the problem. Grendel limps home to his mother, who turns out to be a greater monster than he was. And before too long, Grendel's mother is also afflicting the people in even greater fashion than Grendel himself was. And again, Beowulf has to rise to the occasion, symbolizing, I think, not only the defeat of evil, but also digging deep for the cause of evil. So we fight the monster, and also we fight the monster that beget the monster. But I especially like the third part, where Beowulf is old, and he has been a king for many years. And as his time on earth grows short, he hears about a dragon that is afflicting his people. And there's no one in his kingdom who is able to step up to the challenge. And Beowulf says, this is my responsibility. This is my kingdom. I may not have the strength that I once did, but I do have the resolve that I once did. And I will go and defeat this beast or die trying. It's a very inspirational story, not just for us as we read, but also for those who heard him at the time. Particularly, there's a young warrior named Wiglaf. These names are something. Wiglaf is inspired by his mentor, by this great man that he has known. Sad at heart, addressing his companions, Wiglaf spoke wise and fluent words. I remember that time when Mead was flowing, how we pledged loyalty to our Lord in the hall, promised our ring giver we would be worth our price, made good the gift of the great war gear, those swords and helmets, as and when his need required it. He picked us out from the army deliberately, honored us and judged us, fit for this action, made me these lavish gifts, and all because he considered us to be the best of his arms-bearing thanes. And now, although he wanted this challenge to be one he'd faced by himself alone, the shepherd of our land, a man unequaled in the quest for glory and a name for daring, now the day has come when this Lord we serve needs sound men to give him their support. Let us go to him, help our leader through the hot flame, and dread of the fire. As God is my witness, I would rather my body were robed in the same burning blaze as my gold giver's body than go back home bearing arms. That is unthinkable unless we have first slain the foe and defended the life of the prince of the Weathergaths. I well know the things he has done for us deserve better. 
should he alone be left exposed to fall in battle. We must bond together, shield and helmet, mail shirt and sword. Then he waited the dangerous rock and went under arms to his lord, saying only, Go on, dear Beowulf. Do everything you said you would when you were still young, and vowed you would never let your name and fame be dimmed while you lived. Your deeds are famous, so stay resolute, my lord. Defend your life once with the whole of your strength. I shall stand by you. I could not help thinking of the story of Jesus when I read that and the task that has been handed to us to follow in his footsteps. He goes to his death, fighting the monsters. And in so doing, although he gave his life as Beowulf did, winning the greatest victory of all. And we are privileged to follow, to fight the same battle, to take our lead from him, to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to keep the faith, as Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7. We are to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, putting on that whole armor of God that he mentions there, that we got from him. It may go well or it may go poorly for us in the short term, but surely having the inspiration of the one who's gone before us is enough to have us put on the armor he has given and go forth to the fight. There's a great line in Isaac Watts' great hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, where he says, Are there no foes for me to fight? Must I not stem the flood? Is it not my responsibility also to take up the sword of the Spirit and do battle with the enemy? With Jesus' help, that's exactly what I can and will do, and maybe even encourage other people along the way. This is what I've been hearing. There's a monster inside of all of us. It's a very Jungian archetype. He called it the shadow. I'm not an expert on Carl Jung, but Jordan Peterson is. And he lectures a lot about this idea, the idea of the monster that is within, that is neither good nor bad in and of itself. It's just a matter of how we deal with it. There is part of us on the inside that is willing and eager to jump to the forefront in a moment of stress in a moment of crisis, and take charge of the situation. Drive off the bad guys. Win the day. You get to choose what you do with your shadow self, according to Peterson. And the worst thing in the world you can do is ignore it. The worst thing you can do is say, I am going to pretend like that part of me does not exist. I'm going to deny any kind of, I'm going to just sit here quietly and mind my own business what the world calls meekness. And we'll come back to that term in a second. If you take that attitude toward your monster, Peterson argues, you consign yourself to being a person of no significance, a mealy mouth, a waste of space, someone who can never accomplish anything significant, either for himself or his family or his society. Now, when you think of monsters, of course, you might naturally think of the ones who completely give in to the monster. And become psychopaths, serial killers, people who surrender any kind of responsibility and allow the monster to drive their character, allow their monster to drive their behavior. Peterson urges his listeners, and I for one am totally on board, that instead we choose to control the monster, to allow him to grow, allow him to develop 
in our hearts, in our thoughts, but to maintain control at all times, to grow the strength that the monster gives us, but then channel the strength in a productive fashion. This is much more akin to what the Bible calls meekness. The word apparently in the Greek it is prautes does not translate very well to English, which is one of the reasons why our translators have had such trouble over the years. The original King James called it meekness. The New American Standard Bible uses gentleness. In Vine's expository dictionary, he says of prautes, it is difficult to find a rendering less open to suggestion than meekness. Gentleness has been suggested, but as prautes describes a condition of mind and heart, and as gentleness is appropriate rather to actions, this word is no better than that used in both English versions. It must be clearly understood, therefore, that the meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. The common assumption is when a man is meek is because he cannot help himself, but the Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is equanimity of a spirit that is neither related nor cast down simply because it is not occupied with self at all. Feels like I'm reading a lot this week. When I think of meekness, I think of Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 describes him as the meekest man in all the earth. And this description that Vine gives us is perfectly encapsulated in the life of Moses. A man with immense power. A man who had the ear of God. A man who was offered more than once the opportunity to be the father of an entirely new nation. But instead of exercising that power for his own personal well-being, for his own self-aggrandizement. Instead, he stands between an angry God and his guilty people, standing in the gap, defending them, controlling his anger, controlling his aggression. These meek ones, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, will inherit the earth. An expression taken from Psalm 37, starting in verse number seven, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because the man who carries out wicked schemes cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, but he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. If you want to exist here in this spiritual space, you will trust in God, not Assert yourself, not take the war that you want to take in the place that you want to take it, but rather to trust that God is going to be the giver of life. And if you believe in him, he will give you everything that he promised to give you. That requires strength of character. That requires a channeling of the monster. Yes, be strong. Yes, be assertive. Yes, be brave. But in his cause, not your own. The unchecked monster will go out and take whatever he wants to take. The one who is meek is willing to let Jesus fight the battles for him. And as such, as a person of faith, he will inherit the land. Everything that God has promised to us will be ours, not because we took it, but because God empowered us to receive it through his grace. This is what I've been playing Tracy and I are big fans of the game Cryptid, a game that has appeared previously in this podcast. In Cryptid, you are 
trying to find where the cryptid is. Cryptid is a word for monster, basically. And everybody has a little bit of information, and you try to use the information that you have and intuit from the other players' actions and questions what information they might have, and eventually you figure out where the cryptid is, hopefully before anybody else does. We love the game. It's a lot of fun. And when we heard that there was a game called Cryptid Urban Legends that was done by the creators of Cryptid that played specifically for two players, we were all in on that. We play Cryptid. We play two-player games. What could go wrong? Well, it turns out a lot of things can go wrong. The game's just not very good as far as we're concerned. We didn't like it very much. There is a monster. There is a cryptid. One of the players plays the part of the cryptid. The other one is the scientist. And the idea is for the cryptid to get away and for the scientist to catch the cryptid before he does. And you're in a city. In fact, you have these little square cards that represent city blocks. And the scientist is trying to coordinate efforts to capture the cryptid and doing so in the classic method of pushing cubes around everywhere. At any rate, we didn't find it very fulfilling at all. But one point did grab my attention. I thought it was at least worth bringing up in this context. The whole point is to capture the cryptid. And if you do not maintain containment for the cryptid, the cryptid gets away and wins the game. Once the cryptid escapes containment, kind of like a dog getting out of the backyard, well, it's gone. It goes wherever it goes at that point. And for the purposes of the game, the scientist loses at that point, and the cryptid wins. Keeping a problem in containment is an interesting concept. It made me think of 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 20, where a man named Benaiah, one of David's greatest warriors, kills a lion that was down in a pit. Now, if I had the occasion to be in the presence of a lion that needed killing and the lion was already in a pit, my solution would be put a lid on top of the pit and put something very heavy on top of the lid and let the lion starve to death. Benaiah took a different approach, a much more direct approach. He went down into the pit. Once the line was caught, that's good. But now the line has to be taken care of in the fullest sense of the word. And Benaiah was willing to go down and take care of business in the fullest sense of the word. I love that approach to monsters, to evil in the world, not just allowing it to go away and hopefully before it does too much damage, but rather keeping it contained in the first place making sure it's in its proper place, in its pit, and then eliminating it. I think sometimes we stop short of that. We are willing to contain the problem, but then not really seek out an actual solution to the problem. One example of this might be with factiousness in the local church. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 tell us that we're supposed to reject a factious man after first and second warning. And we know why we do this. We do this because factiousness is contagious. It tears up the fellowship of a local body of saints. So spiritual leadership steps in and addresses the issue directly, addresses the person directly. We cannot have this. But excluding a factious person from the fellowship is not the end of the story. You've isolated the problem, as it were. But factiousness, like any other problem in the Lord's church, does not occur in a vacuum. The brother is not the monster. Sin is the monster. The devil is the monster. And if sin was able to find a foothold in the body of the saints, there must be a reason for that. We are people called to a higher existence, a higher calling. We love the Lord. We love his word. All of us are submitting to the Holy Spirit in this way, at least in theory. If 
a brother gets a wild hair about a particular notion, tries to cause a problem, and everybody else is submitting to the Lord as they should, that brother is an outlier and easily taken care of. We don't call that factiousness. We call that a crank. Factiousness is when it takes root. Well, why did it take root? Yes, find the problem. Isolate the problem. That's a good thing. But then dig down and take care of the problem. Build bridges between brethren who may be estranged from one another. Build wisdom, a proper usage of God's word. Perhaps arrogance, perhaps selfishness, perhaps laziness has filtered in and allowed us to take a less than perfect approach toward implementation of these spiritual truths that we're given here. Build respect for brothers and sisters in Christ. Build fellowship in the fullest sense of the word. Fellowship, after all, is sharing. It's communion. Not just getting around the Lord's table once a week and partaking of common emblems, but rather sharing the work. We are the body of Christ, members of that body, and as such, necessarily connected to one another. And if my attitude toward my brother is less than it ought to be, that's going to impact the body as a whole. You've heard me refer to Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 and following any number of times on this podcast. I'll ask you to listen to it one more time. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's what solidifies us against these evils of the world. That's what causes us, as he goes on to say in verse 14, to not be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. We're able to endure. We're able to succeed in our conflict against evil. If leadership can identify the problem and encourage us, perhaps even chasten us, in the ways of righteousness, then godly people will be able to step up at this time and finish the job, not by correcting the errors in somebody else's life, but rather correcting the errors in our own life to find out why it was that evil found its foothold here. And identifying that problem, we can work toward eliminating it and becoming the body of Christ in the fullest sense, loving one another, working with one another, supporting one another as we strive together toward the goals set for us by Jesus Christ himself and toward the heavenly home that waits for us after this life is over. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.